Well, good morning. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Ben Davidson. I'm the associate pastor here. Um, a lot of the pastors have good titles, you know, like senior pastor, youth pastor, worship pastor, counseling, discipleship pastor, just associate pastor. That's all I am. Uh, I like to think of myself, though, as the associate pastor, you know, kind of like the Ohio State University. I'm the associate pastor. But um, if, if you are visiting with us, uh, oftentimes when you visit a church for the first time, what, who do you want to hear preach? Not the associate pastor. <laughs> you want to hear the senior pastor, right? The, 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 the main preacher. And so maybe in this world of live stream, people aren't as adamant that, you know, maybe they've already checked out uh, Daniel's preaching on, on uh, YouTube. Um, but I, I think you'll find that whoever is standing behind this podium every Sunday does want to be faithful to the text of the scripture and wants to glorify God and, and how they uh, teach the scripture. And so that is my aim uh, today as well. So uh, Daniel is uh, in Texas seeing family. And so I put my family on notice that anything you say this week can and will be used as an illustration for the sermon. And so we'll see how that bears out. They've been uh, duly warned. Um, but let, let me have you uh, find Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 22, if you haven't turned there uh, yet. That's the passage we're going to be looking at today. Um, as, as you do that, let me just uh, reiterate what Jeff and Dave talked about. Um, you know, the, the start of the school year is, I always love the start to a school year, because it's kind of the sense of, of a new beginning. And so if you haven't checked out an adult Sunday school class, this is a chance to kind of just, hey, let, let's just try this. Let's jump in and, and try it. Uh, I, I grew up in a household with educators as parents, and uh, my, my one sibling is a teacher as well, and I, I taught for a time in District 150. And, and so, you know, starts of school year, it's a sense, okay, fresh start. Let's, let's do something uh, new here. So, you know, I love that our ministry fair is going on at the start of the school year. Um, I, I think it's healthy for for every single person that would call Bethany their home to be able to say, and this is a ministry that I serve in. They could name a ministry that they, they serve in. Uh, I love that our care groups are forming back up again uh, for the year, uh, a chance for us to get involved in small group community. I, I grew up in a church of about 100 people, and so this is overwhelming to me compared to my childhood. And so I, I love care groups. It's a chance for us to, to get to know people and to be known ourselves. Uh, another chance for a new a new beginning also. Um, it's been mentioned that our Discovering Bethany classes are starting up again. That's a, a two-week class uh, on Sundays or a, a one time on a Saturday. But I think in two weeks from today, during that 9 a.m. Sunday school hour, uh, you can go to that class to, to learn more about church membership and more about Bethany. Um, again, just a way to say, hey, I, I want to be involved in the life of the church. I want to become a member to say to this body of believers, I want to be one of you. Like, I I need you in my life, and, and I want to be used uh, by God in other people's lives in the church and identify, like, this is my, my church home. And so in two weeks, uh, that Discovering Bethany class will be held at 9 a.m., and then three weeks is part two of that, and then you can jump into one of those adult uh, Sunday school classes. So great time of year. I'm glad you're here. Um, but if you're already at Colossians 3.22, it's our custom to stand as uh, we enter into the passage that we're going to read. So I'm going to read that to you. So if you're able to stand, please join me. Let me read um, Colossians uh, 3.22 all the way to chapter 4, verse 1. And I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. So let's, uh, let's start into our passage here. It says, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. 
whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. You may be seated. Let me just say a quick prayer for us as we enter into this text. So, uh, Heavenly Father, um, thank you uh, for your word, and we ask that you would help us to be all here in mind and, and, and body, <laughs> and, and our, our hearts would be bent towards your scripture. Uh, Lord, I ask that you would allow uh, each of us to consider how uh, might you want to change us in light of looking at this passage today. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, I said the word bondservants because that's what my ESV Bible says, but other uh, versions of the Bible translate that as, as slaves. And so I think before we jump into the text, it's, it's probably wise for me to just share a little bit of a biblical orientation to the Bible uh, and slavery. Uh, this is not going to be a full treatment of the topic. That's probably a sermon series in and of itself. Um, but I think one of the questions that can come up as we read this passage is this. Why doesn't Paul condemn slavery here? Uh, it seems like a pretty obvious thing that, in, in our mindset that Paul could have and should have done. Um, but why doesn't he condemn slavery here? So I'm going to try to do a, a quick summary to try to answer that question and then uh, I'll expand on that summary a little bit. But here, here's my really brief summary for that, okay? Um, slavery in the Bible was not race-based. Uh, in our American mindset, we think of slavery. We obviously think of the horrible tragedy that happened here in uh, America, the idea of the, the, the slave trade. Um, this slavery was different. It was not race-based here, uh, so it does differ in that regard. Um, Typically, slavery in the Bible is slavery that's, that's um, a way of paying off a debt to someone, um, or it's a conquered people um, that slavery is done to kind of keep any rebellion from starting back up. Okay. Uh, slave trading is condemned in the Bible, Ezekiel 21, 1 Timothy 1. Um, the Bible teaches that uh, all are made in the image of God. Slave and master are equally human, uh, protected and one in Christ. And we see that again in, in uh, Exodus 21, Deuteronomy 23, Job 31, Galatians 3. Okay, so that, that's my quick summary. Let me expound on that just for a little bit here. Um, in the Roman culture, slavery was dehum dehumanizing. It was uh, just a, a horrible practice. Uh, slaves were known to be flogged and killed and, and treated inhumane. Uh, so in this culture, so think about that culture, right? He here's what um, Paul writes in Colossians 3.11, Here, there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So think about as, as you're uh, in that culture and you see Paul saying, slave or free, Christ is in all. Um, equalizing. Um, the bond servant and uh, a master and, and those who are free. Um, he goes on in Colossians 3, 15, a few verses later, and says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, not two bodies, not separate groups, and in one body, and be, be thankful. 
Um, Rich Burkle, senior pastor at Bethany Baptist Church, um, I'm going to read a little bit what he said about this. It's going to be a little bit long, but I think it's worth uh, reading. It's, uh, Rich said, uh, Paul understands the gospel of Jesus Christ must be the church's focus. For it is the gospel which is God's change agent, both for the individual and for society. God gives us his gospel as his power to transform lives and culture. Paul understands transformation will not take place through politics nor military revolution, but it first must be grounded and founded upon the gospel. It is the gospel's force which always drives us towards the transformation of the human heart and liberty to the work of God's spirit. In Christ, the gospel offers freedom to the slave today, and that is the reason why the Apostle Paul will focus upon the gospel and upon its implications to everyone whatever state they may be in at the time. He knows freedom is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, so the slave does not have to wait for society to change in order to experience freedom, but the slave need only come to Christ and immediately be freed by God. So what is Pastor Rich saying there? True change begins in the heart, right? That's where true change begins. And so um, back in these times, um, this little sect called Christianity had no political sway in the Roman culture, um, but, and obviously, the political sway only changes the external. It doesn't change the human heart. Uh, the gospel changes from inside out. So Rich goes on to say that the gospel is the greatest force on earth for justice. Isn't that true? It has to start from the inside out. Uh, one commentator stated that the, the apostles were not social reformers. They were first and foremost heralds of the good news of salvation in Christ. Then again, the church was a very small minority in the Roman world. And there was no hope that its stance on the matter of slavery would influence Roman policies. We should be careful to understand, though, he goes on to say, that they did not condone slavery. Indeed, they announced the very principles, such of that as complete spiritual equality of the slave and master, that ultimately destroyed the institution of slavery. So Paul is speaking into a system that he does not condone, but he knows it is broken. In a sense, you know, one can tell their son, who was a soldier, that he should obey the commanding officer, even though the parent might not 100% agree with every decision made in the whole military. Um, one can pay their taxes, uh, yet not agree with every way their tax money is, is spent. Okay? So I think that gives us some insight on why um, Paul doesn't condemn the sl slavery in this passage, but the gospel is a condemnation of, of slavery. Um, I was talking this through with my wife, Casey. We were having lunch uh, at Washington Park together, and uh, she started saying some really wise things, so I hit record on my phone. Um, she knew I was recording her, just I don't record secretly conversations with my wife. <laughs> it could get ugly. Um, so she was aware, um, but here's what she said. She said, um, slavery has been instituted in all parts of the world and by all major civilizations throughout history. It's not, not unique to a certain culture or ethnicity, Slavery, like all other sins, is a worship problem. It's a worship problem. When we begin to worship something other than God, then we treat people as a means to get what we want. And when we worship God, we see all are created in his image, and therefore all are created equal and have dignity. So you could say that you and I are no different than the slave owner. Now, you might be saying, wait a minute, Ben, that's, that doesn't sound right to me. Um, the slave owner has sinful desires, and they act on them. You and I have what? Sinful desires, and we act on them, don't we? 
See, the gospel has a way of leveling off our perceived ranking of goodness, right? Like, I'm here, slave owner here, okay? Um, we're, we're not good. There's no sense of goodness in and of ourselves. The, the ground at the foot of the cross is flat, right? There, there's no ramped hill where here, here are the holier people, the, the best people, the good people, and then here's, you know, me. Um, the ground at the foot of the cross is flat. And so those are some initial thoughts on, on this idea of, of why doesn't Paul condemn slavery in this passage. Again, uh, not uh, a full treatment here. Um, but we have to come to this point of, okay, so how do we view this passage today in central Illinois? How should we view this? And so principally, I believe we can look at it through the lens of the employer-employee uh, relationship. Um, the principles here between bond servant and master slip very easily into today's traditional work situation. I'm not saying a boss is a slave owner, okay? So if you're a business owner or a supervisor, I'm not saying you're uh, a master there. But there is a sense of, of a worker and one who oversees the worker here. Uh, so before I lose some of you here, I realize, realize that not all of us are in an employee-employer relationship. You may be the sole employee of your own business. You may be a farmer with no employees. You may work full-time at home. Uh, you may be 14 years old and not working yet. Uh, you may be retired. Uh, but I think the, the principles here are going to be helpful for all of us. One, that um, we all know someone who's in these situations. We have, we have a chance to then share these principles uh, with others. And there's a possibility that one day you could be in one of these roles as well. So uh, let me encourage you to keep listening. Uh, these, these three points I'm going to share, I think you could see that these points are applicable to anyone anywhere as well. So stick with me here. Um, the, the workplace can be a tricky place to be, and you might be thinking, yeah, Ben, well, what do you know about the workplace? You work with some pretty great people, and uh, you'd be right, I do. I work full-time uh, for Bethany Community Church. Um, so, but I think that we're all aware of the human condition, aren't we? Um, that, uh, and, and I think we're all aware that as I teach truth, I don't have to be an experiencer of your application in order for me to teach it, right? Because where, where's the hope in that? If, if you want to get counsel from someone and you're saying, well, I need to find a counselor who's been through exactly what I've gone through, that's going to be a really hard counselor or teacher to find because they're not going to be able to say they've gone through every little thing you've gone through. And so uh, as we herald the truth, you know, we, the hope is not in the experience of the teacher or the counselor. The hope is in the, the scripture and the God of that, of that scripture. And so we, we all struggle, no matter where we are in the workplace, with, uh, with people, uh, fellow strugglers in walking this earth. So whether you're a pastor or a postal worker, a teacher, a, a student, it doesn't matter. Um, some of you might know that I was a third grade teacher at one point in my career. And so the dynamics of the workplace, in a lot of ways, are the same no matter what role you have. Okay. So, uh, the workplace can be a place where we, we punt our faith and live out our flesh, can't it? We, we just leave our faith at the door and we do the culture of work instead of living out our faith. Um, our, our, heart our heart issues are the same. Um, we do what we do because we want what we want. So if I'm a pastor and I want something my way instead of God's way, I've got a problem. If I'm an engineer, I want to do things my way instead of God's way, I've got a problem. If I work in the service world and I want things done my way instead of God's way, I've got a problem. So where's the hope for all of us? 
The gospel is the hope. The gospel is the hope for us. You see, the, the gospel is not something just for the day of salvation. Then we kind of put it up on a shelf. Okay, now I need to try to figure out how to live for God. We need the gospel every day. We need the gospel every minute of every day. We need the gospel for every second of every minute of every day. We need it to saturate us like water does a sponge. And so here, here is our main, our main idea for, for today and, and for this passage that we've read through. A, a gospel-saturated life orientates how we view work relationships. A gospel-saturated life orientates how we view work relationships. And uh, I thought of this uh, not too long ago, but the idea here is that the, the gospel means that I deserve nothing. If we have a true understanding of the gospel, it means that I deserve nothing. And then it helps us understand that God gives me everything. Everything I have is grace. From my salvation, that I, when I, when I trust in him for the payment of my sin, um, to the shirt on my back, everything I have is because of him. So then I joyfully strive to follow his commands no matter what my situation. I do it with joy. Charles Spurgeon says, Satan tells me I am unworthy, but I was always unworthy. (laughs) And yet God has long loved me. And so then I serve him with joy, right? I I once heard a speaker say, every morning I get up, I thank God I'm not in hell. Isn't that the truth? But I deserve better, Ben. You don't understand. I deserve that. What do we deserve in life? What do we truly deserve? The only thing that Ben Davidson deserves is hell. For the wages of sin is death, right? So what I've earned, the wages for what I've done, earns death. Spiritual separation from God forever, what the Bible calls hell. That's what I deserve. So every morning we get up, we should thank God we're not in hell. And then we serve we serve joyfully because of that reality. Uh, Colossians 1.29 says that, that we serve with all his energy that powerfully works within us. So Tim Keller says, are you running to justify yourself or are you running because you're justified? Are you running trying to kind of earn God's favor and, and be kind of declared worthy enough for heaven or are you running because you already know that you're justified? You already know that you're declared innocent by Christ shed blood on the cross and by that great exchange happening where he places his righteousness into the believer and our unrighteousness gets put on to Christ at the cross. So which, which way are you running? So I believe that this, the entire purpose of this book Uh, of the book of Colossians is to to show us how to live life in light of the gospel, how to run because you are justified already. Paul is writing to a church established by a disciple of his. He's addressing some of the concerns of threats, the true gospel understanding here. So Paul goes on the offensive in the first two chapters and heralds the gospel, focusing on the person of, of Jesus. And then he writes the last two chapters with the focus on how we live out the gospel in the midst of those influencing this church away from God's word and the clear gospel message. So in chapters three and four, Paul gets intensely practical here. 
He encourages the, the, encourages the, the putting off of sin, the putting off of righteous actions that display the gospel. He tells them to let God's peace rule on them, to let the, the, the word dwell richly in them. Then he turns his attention to relationships, the husband, the wife, to parent, child. And then we get to this part here where it's about bondservants, slaves, and, and masters. It seems to fit neatly here with this, these household relationships. So remember I said that all three points for this sermon uh, would be applicable for all. So here are the three points, okay? Here they are. Uh, remember your purpose, remember your reward, and remember how you've been treated. Remember your purpose, remember your reward, and remember how you've been treated. Now the danger in a, a preacher giving the three points right now is that you're going to fill in those little blanks and then the head's going to start to nod off a little bit, okay? So let me encourage us to stay with me here. I want to tell you where we're going, and then at the end, uh, we'll see if we got there. Uh, but kids especially, I want to encourage you. Um, we always told our kids, like, hey, make sure you fill in the blanks. Since now you're thinking, hey, I'm off scot-free. I got the blanks filled out. We're, we're good to go. Uh, here's my encouragement to you kids. Under each point, write something uh, about that point, okay? Or if you're younger, draw a picture of an illustration you hear me say, okay? So stay with us and, and maybe put something underneath each, each point here, okay? Let's remember our big idea. A gospel-saturated life orientates how we view work relationships. And so if you saturate yourself with the gospel, number one, you'll, you'll remember your purpose. So let's go back to verses uh, 22 and 23 here. I'm, I'm going to reread them here for us. It starts with bond servants. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Now you can keep your eyes down on the scriptures if you're following along here, and I'm just going to kind of explain a little bit the certain portions of this text here. It says, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. So in everything. This is pretty all-encompassing, right? Obey in everything, uh, those who are your earthly masters. So we see the, the, the contrast here, the context of this command versus maybe the, the context of American slavery here, that this context assumes a good earthly master, that you could obey everything uh, at, that you're asked to do uh, by the earthly master. It says not by the way of eye service here, not just do external service here, and that's how I think the NASB translates this, ex external service service that just when their eyes are on you you kind of go through the motions and do it externally without really um, doing it with your heart here um, and then and then not do it as people pleasers just just to win the favor of of the master um, because you're already favored in the lord's sight right we are one in christ and then he says to go on to, to do this with with sincerity of heart fearing the lord that the greatest motivation for the bondservant to serve is to please the Lord. There is a, a reverence for the Lord. That's what the fear of the Lord means. There's this awe and reverence of, of who God is. The heart attitude is to worship this great God, to please, to honor, and to glorify him. Does this mean that they can do it perfectly? No, that does not mean perfection in that. But it means that their greatest desire over and above other desires like comfort or ease or status or possessions or other idols that can be worshipped more than the Lord. And then in verse 23, it says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, meaning with their entire being, their inner being, as is working for the Lord himself. Now you think of a child 
who uh, maybe hits his or her sibling and is told to ask forgiveness, and what's the child do? Sorry, you know, kind of through a, a grumbling sense of saying sorry. That's not the sincerity of heart that you'd hope to see in that child, right? Uh, but that's what this passage is talking about. There should be a sincere thought here of, 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 of a sincere work. Um, maybe you've seen the video of a high school teacher uh, when leaving the room for a brief minute says to the students, don't, don't be on your cell phones while I'm out of the classroom, right? And then returning, instead of entering into the classroom, just sticks the arm in the classroom and flips off the light. And the glow from the laps of every student in the class, right, of the, the, the cell phones, you can see that there. Uh, these students are what? They're people pleasers, right? They're, this is just eye service. They want to appear like they're studying, but meanwhile, they're kind of looking at the, their phone underneath them there. Uh, my daughters and I were talking this week about how easy it can be to cheat in school today um, and not appear as a cheater. But where's the reverence there? Where's the awe of who God is? Where's the fear of the Lord in that? I remember I was on a cross-country team in, in high school, and our school's course uh, went into some woods and did a loop and then came back to exit right where you entered. And there was farmland on each side of that, that entrance and exit there. And so as I would enter uh, down into that loop, uh, my teammates would hide in the crops uh, to avoid that loop. So if it was corn, it was easy to hide. If it was soybeans, you had to kind of duck down really low to not be seen. Um, but as I would come back up out of that loop, it was like the most terrifying moment of your life because it was kind of like this horror movie of people coming out of the corn at you, you know, all at once. Uh, but what were my teammates wanting, to, not all of my teammates, some of my teammates uh, wanting there, right? They wanted to look good before the coach. And boy, they, they looked really refreshed when they came out of that corn uh, and looked like they were doing really well. Um, but they were just trying to please uh, themselves. It was just external service here. Um, there was a song released in 1981 by a band called Loverboy. It was called Everybody's Working for the Weekend, right? Everybody's Working for the Weekend. Is that what our purpose is as believers, to just kind of get her done, endure it, get through it, and let's get to the weekend? Think about your work from this last week, okay, whatever you're doing. Now imagine if the Lord himself manifested his visible self before you as you worked, Imagine having a visible, constant reminder of the Lord himself before you, his relentless love, his abounding grace. Now, I've never had that, and, and, but it doesn't make any less true. He's there, right? He is near. He is always there. And we sometimes think, well, wouldn't it be, would it have been great to be in biblical times and have, you know, to walk right next to Jesus and just obey him and enjoy his, his presence? Well, I've, I've read some stories about some disciples doing some pretty dumb stuff and saying some pretty dumb stuff uh, right there with, with Jesus standing in front of them. Uh, so what are some of the applications here? Um, if we can do everything unto the Lord, th this means that the most menial of tasks have dignity as it's done unto the Lord. From the ditch digger to the leaders of countries, all roles have meanings and glorify God. So if you say, yeah, Ben, but, I, but I'm only a fill in the blank, then what are you saying? You're saying God gives honor to work, but I don't. So if you consider your work life, if you're seeing yourself take liberties at work, uh, being okay with taking things home for personal use, thinking you deserve personal time at, at work because of all I've done for the company, it's time to evaluate your heart. What are you really working for? 
And maybe even, how is that leaking into the rest of your life? What are you really living, living for? It's time, maybe it's time for a shift in perspective and attitudes. You think about your employer. If he or she is a Christian and at some point asks you to do something you don't like, what attitude shift do you need? Uh, what if he or she treats you unkindly? What, what if your boss is not a Christian and, and you expect them to act like one? Um, what if a coworker is taking shortcuts and, and uh, you think, well, this isn't fair. Um, there, there's no scale in this passage, right, of, work for the Lord unless you see someone doing this or that, right? Our goal is to glorify God. We're to do everything that those in authority ask us to do. Obviously, to sin would not be a part of this equation, but when we're asked to do things, we work hard, and we do it even if the public eye is not upon us. We do it with reverence for the Lord, remembering the gospel, and joyfully working for him even behind closed doors. So the bottom line is for us to consider our motivations. And there are motivations that are good, like, putting food on the table, wanting to stay out of the debt, providing for the family. Of course, those are good motivations for work, but if the main motivation is not to worship, please, and glorify the Lord, then we're working for the wrong reasons. This keeps us from thinking that there are, there are sacred parts of life, you know, like going to church, having devotions, um, um, church attendance, um, our faith in general. There's kind of the, these sacred parts. Then there's these secular parts to our life. Let me explain that. Um, I like to think of life like a pie, and every slice of that pie represents a different part of who we are. I think I've said this in past sermons that um, there's, you know, you can say there's the intellectual self, uh, there's the emotional self, the relational self, and you can say there's vocational self for job, and then we kind of take the spiritual self and make that another slice. That's another slice of the pie, my spiritual self, and I'll, I'll kind of check that box when I need to. Um, but that, that's, that doesn't cover it well. I think the spiritual self, that, that's the crust underneath the pie, right? Whatever you believe about spiritual things, whether you're a Christian, an atheist, an agnostic, a Buddhist, a Hindu, whatever you believe about spiritual things affects how you live out every slice of your pie, the vocational self, intellectual self, emotional self, relational self, all those different aspects of, of, who, of who we are. And so we tend erroneously to put the vocational side as a kind of a separate side of my life um, that's not influenced by the spiritual side. Um, but it's not separate. It, it's foundational um, to our vocation. Everything we do in our work time is influenced by what we believe. So we work cheerfully. We work cheerfully as working for the Lord himself and not for our boss. Okay, so we remember, so remember our purpose. We believe in uh, a believing employee is also challenged to remember your reward. Okay, let's look at verses 24 and 25 here. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. Verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for what the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Okay, so there's a positive side here in verse 24, and then a negative side here in verse 25. So in verse 24, the believing slave is told, uh, you will receive reward. Okay, that reward is, is heaven, eternal joy with our Savior, Revelation 20, 12, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open, and then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. Had they placed their faith in Christ alone for salvation or not? And so the slave is told, you will get a reward, eternal joy with the Savior. And then the negative side, for the wrongdoer will be paid back 
for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. There is a hell and there is a heaven, and the wages of sin puts us in hell unless you place your faith in Christ. Let me give you an illustration here. We've all been here in this situation. Your your mother or your school teacher or your grandmother says, if you be good, I'm going to give you a reward. All right? I don't know about you, but as a kid, I would kind of weigh that out a little bit. Okay, well, what kind of reward are we talking about here? You know, if, if it's a Snickers bar, hey, I think I, that's, that's motivating to me, but a Three Musketeers, ugh, I'm not going to you know, do much for that, right? Um, how good will this reward, reward be? Or, or uh, you know, Mom, how are you going to determine how good I am uh, in order to receive the reward? How good do I have to be? What can I get away with in order to receive the, the reward? You can see what a joy I was to raise. Um, This passage does not teach this kind of reward here. That's not what this passage is teaching here. This passage speaks of a God who gives generously even though we're not good. He gives generously even though we're not good. This passage speaks to an inheritance that allows us to live in eternity with new bodies, perfect relationships, and to dwell with God in eternal joy. This motivates our service. Right? This motivates our, our work. If believers remember their reward, when things are tough, we think about what is waiting for us. It gives us hope. It allows us to endure. Uh, in 2004, Casey and I, uh, my wife Casey and I, we changed campus ministry locations from Champaign uh, back to kind of where we were from here in, in the greater Peoria area. So we, we bought a house in Bartonville. And I knew it was close to a military base there, but I didn't realize how close it was going to be or, or how loud a plane can be. A lot of the takeoffs in Bartonville are those C-130 cargo planes, just those huge, huge planes. And one of the first nights in our home, I was in our bedroom by myself, and the windows began to shake. And the floorboards I was standing in began to move. Now, now, I know that was a C-130, okay? But for about one and a half seconds, I thought it was the hour. I thought Jesus was coming back. I'm not joking, and it's funny to laugh at it now, right? But 1 Corinthians 15, 52, in a moment, in the twinkle of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. And I'll tell you, I, I've got goosebumps on my arms right now. I was ecstatic, <laughs> you know, because I was, you know, married, I'd graduated, I'd married, I'd had kids, like, what's left, right? Lord, come. <laughs> Just come. I'm ready, right? I, I wish I could replicate that feeling. Um, I've had a lot of joyous occasions in my life, like I just mentioned, um, but, but none could compare to the thought of seeing my Savior face to face. My reward was coming. And at that moment, I was ready. Jesus was coming. Um, many, many years ago, Casey and I were able to see a one-man show uh, about the moment Christ came back. And this man was depicting uh, a salesman who, when Jesus came back, he was ushered into heaven. He had made a decision for Christ as a child, and he was ushered uh, into to heaven. And he had uh, made it through the, the first judgment uh, of, are you... Uh, a believer in Christ or not. And so he had made it to that first judgment and he was in heaven. And 
he began to think about, as he's in heaven, the wasted opportunities that he had to bring glory to God in his work in all areas of his life. And he, he took some, li- the actor took some liberties in this play, um, but he said, you know, all of Christendom was seated in a huge, like, football stadium, and God knew exactly how many seats to put in there, right? Um, and, and as they were all gathered there, they're all high-fiving each other and so glad to be together, and we have, this is awesome to be with the Lord. And then uh, the second judgment came. And, and this is one that, one that maybe we don't know as much about, but there is a second judgment. It's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 3, 13. Uh, Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. This is 1 Corinthians 3, 13. Uh, through 15. Let me be very clear here. Um, The first judgment is about sin. The second judgment has nothing to do with sin. Uh, The sin is forgiven. It's about stewardship. It is what were you, were you able, what did you do with what you had been given? And so each of us have different stewardships, right? Uh, We're not all the same in that, but that is referred to as the Bema seat judgment of stewardship. And and so the the actor in the play, again, took some liberties. He he made a talk about how uh, each believer was called forth to the stage and, and, and were rewarded for their stewardship, which I think is going to be uh, pretty close to reality. And so he, he mentioned that uh, this one woman, that no one knew her name, came forward. And as she came forward, the, the angel's uh, wings were fluttering because they were so excited for her because she prayed. She prayed. And Jesus said, well done, and just heap rewards to this woman. And then the actor, the salesman, his name was called. He was like, oh, boy, <laughs> I, did not, I was not a good steward, but he was given a little reward because one time he had talked to someone about, about the Lord and gives a little reward. And then the crescendo of the play is when all of Christ's children do what? They throw their rewards at the feet of Jesus and worship him. Say, God, we're not worthy of these things. It's all about, it's all about you. We work with eternity in mind. We work with eternity in mind. The, the joy of knowing that Jesus will be with us forever, and we will receive reward. What reward should we not be working for? Retirement. If we're working for retirement, we're going to be horribly disappointed from a biblical point of view. And I remember a dear saint at Bethany Baptist Church named Lowell Wallen. Some of you know that name. Lowell was a chemist by trade and said that his work supported his ministry both in the workplace, his neighborhood, and his church. And as he came to retirement, his thinking was, well, now I don't have to work anymore to support my ministry. My retirement funds help me to minister more fully, more full-time. And I know, I know Lowell still stayed in touch with his former co-workers, his boss. He also increased, this increased his ability to minister in his neighborhood and the church. And I remember in his 80s, Lowell was my grandmother's Sunday school teacher. Her name was Daisy. And on her birthday, he would always call her and sing this song about daisies to her. Um, his legacy lives on today, you know, the greatness of Christ in and through Lowell Wallen. John Piper's famous message uh, from the Passion Conference in May 2000 to 40,000 college-age students brought us a view of retirement where he, he referenced a, a couple retiring early at 59 and 51 years old to go to Florida to ride their boat and collect shells. It became known as the Seashells Sermon. Say that five times fast. Seashells Sermon. Um, 
Here's what Piper said. The American dream, a nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement, collecting shells is the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account of what you did. Here it is, Lord, my shell collection. Now, I get some of the pushback on this illustration. One can move to Florida and continue ministry and may need a break from ministry for a multitude of reasons. But I think the deeper question that Piper was asking here is, what is your motivation for work? A living sacrifice for the rest of your days or one looking for comfort and ease? Believe or remember your reward and live like you're excited about it. So what if I told you, hey, after church, we're all going to go back to the back of the church. We're going to be digging ditches together. Everybody, all of us are going to do that. Some of you are like, nah, I'm going to be standing up right now and leaving. <laughs> right, uh, I would get that. Uh, but what if I told you um, that um, there's going to be this bountiful feast afterwards, and actually each of you are going to be, reward, be rewarded by being given $1 million each, not per household, per person, okay? And, and the reward was not based on your ability on how well you dig, just what you did, that, that, that you, you did what you could. Um, how's that work look now? Uh, maybe a little pep in your step now as you joyfully bound out to the back of the church. Um, remember your reward, believer, and live and work like you're excited about it. Okay, so we're going to remember our purpose, remember our reward, and lastly, remember how you've been treated. Remember how you've been treated. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Uh, this verse is, is very general and pretty straightforward. Uh, but if you're in a position of authority uh, in the workplace, I believe you could take time to meditate on this, and I'm convinced you can come up with many applications for this. You know, treating your workers like brothers and sisters. Um, and if they're not a Christian, sharing your life, your testimony, sharing the gospel uh, with them showing them your care, knowing, knowing their, their names, but their kids' names and their hobbies. Um, how does how, how you've been treated in Christ speak into how you treat those you work with? So let's go back to the main idea and see if we've covered this here. A gospel-saturated life orientates how we view work relationships. Um, the workplace can be a place where we either punt your faith or live uh, for him. So let's remember the gospel, our purpose, our reward, how God has treated us. Let's be set apart in the workplace and really in all things. Uh, let's wake up each morning and be thankful we're not in hell. And let's run because we're justified. So let me pray uh, for us toward that end. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness to us through the gospel, that your desire is for us to work in a way that will glorify you and bring us the most joy. We ask for your blessing as we endeavor to apply these truths no matter what our situation. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.